Hello and welcome to a new podcast series, COVID-19 and the EU, brought to you by Nearcast. In this six-part series, we look at how the EU is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and to the future for EU citizens living with COVID-19. We'll look at the present and future of Europe in the COVID context and touch on travel restrictions, mobility across member states, vaccines and much more. In episode one, I caught up with Irish MEP Claire Daly over Zoom. Claire tells us about her life as an MEP and the diverse makeup of MEPs in Parliament. We chat about the perceived lack of EU coverage in Irish media and how she is big in Bulgaria. We look at the EU's response to COVID, talking travel restrictions and potential vaccines. I want to welcome to the podcast Claire Daly, Dublin-based MEP, one of 13 MEPs from Ireland, elected to the European Parliament in July 2019. Claire is a member of the Independence for Change Alliance. Claire is a former TD in Ireland, having been elected in 2011 and 2016 in the constituency of Swords North Dublin. So Claire, how are you? And, and can I ask you, where are you at the moment? In Brussels, thanks very much for first for inviting me on. Um, delighted to be here. I mean, I'm actually in Brussels, and I have been in Brussels pretty much since the first lockdown in about March. I made it home in May for a week after they brought in tests in here in the Parliament to allow MEPs to travel a bit, and then I came home in the summer for about another week, 10 days, um, which my mother allowed me to spend in her garden. I wasn't even allowed in the house. And I've been back in Brussels ever since. So uh, I suppose my looking on at Ireland, I'm looking on it in on Ireland now nearly as a foreigner because it's so long since I've been there and listening to the news and the new restrictions. I'm wondering, are we even going to be allowed back for Christmas at this stage? And usually, let, let's say in pre-COVID times, what, what was a week like for you? Like you would be back much more regular, I, I take it. Yeah, well, we would have been, not every week now, you know, but certainly every third week, maybe every second week, you know. And I mean, we had great plans to use the access that we get to information and everything to hear, to have events in, in Ireland. Like I'd remember being really hopeful to uh, have, you know, um, seminars and information sessions and you know try and bring some of the information about what's going on here back home but sure all of that is knocked on the head now I know people are trying to do it by webinars and all of that and that's great but it's not enough like you know I mean we try it also by podcast we've launched a podcast myself and Mick Wallace sort of I foresee trouble with Daly and Wallace to cover the work that we do here because it's absolutely shocking how little coverage there is in Ireland of European issues you know it's it's incredible like uh, I was actually in Bulgaria last week I'm I'm actually big in Bulgaria now because of the work that I've done in the parliament and there's not a single line in an Irish me- newspaper but anything we do about Ireland not to mind the fact that an Irish MEP has become nearly a, a national figure in Bulgaria you know madness so <laughs> tell us a bit more about that i was gonna i was gonna just ask actually the day-to-day work of an mep we don't really find out so what what does a week look like for you and how did you end no. up being big in bulgaria and, and nobody does right and that's the mad thing and when i was out with you last year running for 
the European Parliament, I didn't have a clue myself. And that's to be honest, like I think I had no idea really about the scale of the Parliament. There's obviously now after Brexit, there's 700 MEPs. We're generally based in Brussels, which I knew about, but the madness of going to Strasbourg every every month and what that meant, I hadn't a clue about. And I think most people wouldn't. So because in the treaties of the European Union, France had to get something, considering the parliament was in Brussels, they said that the parliament should go to Strasbourg every month. That means 7,000 people uprooting themselves and moving down to that part of France for a week. It means all the Parliament's cars. It means a building down there, which is paid for by taxes, where I have two offices that I think I've been in once this year. Uh, Unbelievable madness. So the environmental footprint and the economic cost of that, it takes up about 40% of the Parliament's budget and all just to keep a little diplomatic arrangement on site. Now, obviously, at the moment, we're not going to Strasbourg because nobody is travelling and the French government are threatening the parliament that if we don't go back down there, they're going to sue the parliament. So that's the parliament we meet in, in Brussels. But there is, other than that, there is, it's like a, a, a three-leaf clover. There's also the European Commission, which is what Phil Hogan was and Mairead McGuinness now is. They're the big boys. Each country appoints a commissioner. They're the ones who set the agenda and the parliament and the council and the council is just the agreement of all of the other heads of state and countries. Uh, We can kind of ratify or not uh, or change sometimes uh, what the what the commission recommends, but we can't initiate stuff. So a normal day doesn't exist uh, and it doesn't exist in COVID no more for anybody else. But. In order, it's not like a parliament in Ireland where you go in and, you know, shout and roar and raise the hands of majority rule. A lot of the work is done in committees and you're really only entitled to be on one committee as a full member and you might get onto one as a sub. And now I've actually managed to get on four committees uh, and they will take up a lot of time. Some of those committees would have subcommittees to them. So a lot of the work that I'm doing, I managed to get onto the Security and Defence Committee, which I think for Ireland being a new country, a neutral country is really important, particularly when uh, a lot of the European budget now has been spent on militarism and armaments, which it never was before. And I don't think people in Ireland kind of know that because it's not been publicised anywhere. So we uh, meet in committee regularly, uh, some committees more than others. I'm also on the transport committee and that has been brilliant. And the airport unions had begged me to try and get on that because obviously I worked in Aer Lingus before. And I think particularly now with COVID and how aviation has been walloped and how Ireland is particularly vulnerable, that's a good committee to be on. And then we have the plenary. So that's going on at the moment. Uh, And this is where they're doing the big cap program. So the money for agriculture, which is the biggest part of the budget, But again, they're going to spend that money and there's going to be a big contradiction. They'll give money to the big farmers. They talk about biodiversity and protecting the climate, but actually the way they're distributing the money will not improve that situation. So that's going on uh, this week and there's there's murder at that, you know. And I haven't even mentioned Bulgaria yet. (laughs) So, so in effect, um, notwithstanding COVID, you know, there's so much here that we could talk about in terms of security, in terms of arms. Yeah, I I guess... uh, you know what we will talk about about COVID, but just in terms of people trying to understand what MEPs do week mm. to week and day to day, uh, what you're doing is working for for the European Union, basically in terms of making the lives of all citizens of the EU better, not just Ireland. 
obviously Ireland by extension, but your remit is not Ireland per se. Is that right? But do I have that yeah, right? Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, right? And it's one that 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 touches the issue. And you're totally right, like both in terms of the law and in terms of the way I look at it. You're elected to the European Parliament, you represent the citizens of Europe. That's the way I view it. But a lot of people, a bit like the way in Ireland, when somebody gets elected to the doll, they still do a lot of the parish pump stuff to look after their own voters to make sure they get back in again, rather than dealing with the legislation and the stuff they're supposed to be dealing with. The European Parliament's a bit like that as well. It's very unusual for people in some ways to, you know, they, they tend to focus sometimes on their own countries. I mean, to be honest, it's true as well that some people do absolutely nothing at all for their own country or anything and can get away with it, you know, which is disgraceful. Like sometimes it's treated as a sort of a a retirement home for people. So you have that complete cross section of people and you have really, uh, you know, your former ministers and former prime ministers here, your former army generals. And then you might have some young NGO activists from Germany who's fought uh, against racism or something. Do you know what I mean? So you've got that complete cross-section, which is really good, uh, but you can be active or as, as, as active or as lazy as you like, and people won't really criticise that. But you're right, it should be to represent the citizens. But what's really scary, and we see it in the debate on CAP now, is the huge influence of the big uh, lobbies, the arms industry, corporate agriculture, big pharma and all those. And they are, are dictating the agenda as well. And obviously they have the ear of a lot of the bigger groups. So actually policy has been done to... Re- you know, promote the interests of big business and not the citizens, you know. So, but yeah, we're supposed to be covering what all the citizens do. And like, you know, we mentioned Bulgaria, like, but I kind of paid attention to Bulgaria because of some Irish people who had bought uh, holiday apartments in Bulgaria and were getting ripped off by the management company. And I raised it in the context of a discussion about corruption in Bulgaria. And suddenly the Bulgarian radio want to talk to me and all this kind of thing because they're sitting in the room and they're following what's going on in Europe. And no Irish media outlet does that, you know. And then by that, I got to know a bit more. And there's huge, there's actually a hundred, more than a hundred days of protests against the Bulgarian government, which nobody is covering at all. Um, and I I attended that at the at the weekend. Um, but yeah, no, the stuff my speech in the parliament went viral on Facebook, like a million views and all of this, like people kind of not quite a household name, but like, you know, loads of people uh, would know about the work because I was able to put their government under pressure, you know. Uh, the stuff we've done in terms of last week, there's been the most appalling violence carried out by the Croatian police on vulnerable refugees who are trying to to cross the border into Europe. The violence was so horrific, you you would vomit if I described it, you know. And again, I've been able to raise that issue here, catch the commission out and say the Guardian in the UK, who are not even in the flipping European Union, are doing an article about that. Do you know what I mean? It's mad, like, the way the Irish media just ignores it. Let me just move it on a little bit. The the reason I invited you to talk was about COVID and the EU's response to COVID. So it's been reported in the news yesterday that Belgium's case numbers are among the highest in Europe at the moment. I, I suppose from your own point of view, how's this affecting you and the work in general of the parliament? Is, is it having an effect or is it just business as usual over there? It's a bit of a mix, right? I mean, Belgium's cases actually were always dreadful, even during the, the lockdown 
areas, um, the figures. And I, I didn't know why it wasn't featuring as much because it, they were always pretty bad. Now, they used to say, oh, it was the way they were counting them and including them. And uh, the figures have gone up over the past period and say in the last 10 days, they shut the pubs. And then from Sunday night now, they've shut the restaurants um, and the coffee shops and that have shut. Um, and certainly from the Parliament's point of view, they're saying that our staff can only have to work from home 80% of the time. Um, but like the plenary is on, there's a lot of people around. The Parliament has, you know, full on sanitising going on all the time. All the meetings are organised either um remotely and physically for people to go to with social distancing. You have to wear your mask everywhere in the meetings. You can only take it off when you're speaking. That's always been the case. So it's got tougher. Like the rules had relaxed. We were allowed to bring all our staff back. Now they've been sent home. And now, like for the first time, I'm hearing of loads of people who've had it, loads of them. But none of them have been sick. You know, they get it. They get diagnosed because the testing here is incredible. So they get the test, they have it, they kind of isolate and come back. But none of them have been floored by it. And I don't know if that's because they're younger or whatever, but I, I don't know. But so I suppose it hasn't disrupted us that much, although this week now we've gone a little bit backwards in terms of, you know, I mean, we've been wearing masks in public for weeks anyway. Uh, so it's really just the restaurants and the bars. And actually they brought in a nighttime curfew as well. So from 12 o'clock at night to six in the morning, you're not allowed on the streets and alcohol has been, alcohol sales have been banned, I think from about eight o'clock or something. So that kind yeah, of I stuff. But you see on the other, other side then, there's total freedom. Like we get, there's been testing brought in in the parliament all the time. Uh, you can travel to other countries if you get your test. You get your result back very promptly. You know, if you land in Brussels airport, there's testing there. They'll test you for free. If you go to Italy, they'll test you. They'll give you results within 24 hours. And I have pilots and cabin crew and airport workers begging, like, for Ireland to, you know, at least introduce... I can't understand why Ireland hasn't got tested in the airports. Like, it's just unbelievable. That does seem like something that should have been rolled out. And, and I get, this comes into my question around the EU's response to COVID. And th is it a case that this is something that could be easily copied from country to country, where if you can do tests in Belgium, in Brussels airport, why can't you do them in Dublin airport? Is it is it the will of the government here that's lacking? Or is it the fact that it hasn't been rolled out across the EU the way the way it should be. I mean, look, th there's been huge lack of coordination at an EU level. I mean, they waffle on about solidarity all the time. But the reality was when the virus broke out earlier in the year, they all ran for cover behind their own national borders. They left the Italians without masks, without equipment. And then when the Chinese and the Cubans then started sending over um, masks, they got panic stricken then and then they rustled up a few like you know so it kind of started with that then a lot of the countries put up their closed their borders which is a bit ridiculous in loads of ways because you could live in Germany but like your nearby town could be in France or whatever you know what I mean it's it's one uh, virus no matter what country you're in really so there was a, a closing of borders that caused an awful lot of problem for workers who work on both sides of it and um, big outcry over that that that's been generally sorted but quite late in the day so now they have the traffic light system where they coordinate the level of threat 
and they're supposed to be, but it is a member state decision. So in Ireland's case, it would be the Irish government, but other countries the same for how they deal with things. And most other countries have a system where there are testing. Like if you if you take it, Belgium and the Netherlands and France have got really bad, whereas Italy has been the best in Western Europe, ironically now for uh, the last period. But was it last week or the week before Belgium and Holland and the France were put into a kind of a dangerous category from the point of view of Italy. So Wednesday night, they brought this in and said, no, anybody coming from these countries now has to be tested. And by Friday morning, they had all their airports were, you know, with all of the testing, big queues, electronically upload the information. People were told that if they had a test in their own country, grand, they'd have to do this test at the airport, self-isolate for 48 hours. Their information would be updated on the database. And then, you know, obviously if they had COVID, then it was a problem. If they didn't just carry on on their holidays or their work or whatever, the test results were actually out within 24 hours. So a minor inconvenience that nobody would mind, but yet they get to travel. And then Ireland, Aviate, an island who needs our airlines even more, they can't even do that. And I mean, I've been asking, I know you asked me the question. All I can say is I've been asking that question of the Irish government for months now. And I haven't got any answer at all. Just kind of, yeah, yeah, we're looking at it. It's one of the things, la, la, la. It's just the inconsistency in Ireland seems to be shocking. How does the travel restrictions, and Ireland hasn't adopted the green light system yet. How does that affect the EU's promotion of mobility around Europe, people's yeah. ability to move freely? Do you do you see that that, that you know, countries were closing up borders in the early stage. Is that is that not, you know, going against the ethos of the EU to an extent? Totally, not even to an extent. You're 110% right. And they kind of got into a panic because they talk about these four freedoms, like, but when they talk about freedom of movement and we look at that and ordinary people look at that from the point of view of, Jesus, great, we can go on our holidays like without showing a passport. Now, obviously, Ireland and England stayed out of that Schengen system, but most of Europe didn't. So they have this one of what they call the jewels in the crown was the Schengen uh, system. So you can move freely uh, across all the countries that are involved, which is most of the countries in the European Union and makes life incredibly simple. But of course, while that's nice for people going on their holidays or studying, and we all love that, the real reason behind that was for the move of labour so that business could profit from that. So they were up in arms when a lot of the countries just ran home and, you know, locked up the borders. It caused enormous problems for companies and it completely went against uh, the grain of what the EU says it talks about and what it represents, a free movement. So uh, a lot of the countries sort of in Eastern, some of them used it for racist purposes, like to keep out refugees and break the law there. Uh, so there's huge problems. And I mean, I think you're right. Like it's to me, it's shown the weakness of the European Union. Like they they, they talk on the one hand, great talks and uh, there's cracks there behind the scenes, though. Just in terms of kind of if I get your opinion on individual countries for a minute, there's been a lot of debate about Sweden and their approach to the crisis. And I'm sure you have collaborated on committees with Swedish MEPs or, you know, you know, you know, Swedish diplomats mm. from your time in, in the parliament. And um, they didn't lock down like other countries. And, and evidence suggests um, as the rest of the EU is heading into the midst of a second wave, uh, cases in Sweden are not rising as fast. So do you think that they made the right call or, or, or isn't? Is it starting to look like they made the right call? Um, I'd like to know your thoughts on that. You know, it, it's very hard to know. And you know what I mean? When people aren't 
from a medical background, they're kind of afraid to say something that could be misconstrued and undermine public health. But yeah, I mean, we have to look at Sweden traditionally was quite a progressive uh, country. They're not, you know, who had good public services. I know they've been eroded a bit, but they're also a country that places a lot on kind of personal responsibility in that. So it wasn't that they were doing nothing like, do you know what I mean? That they left everything open and say, oh, do what you like. They're quite good at respecting rules without thing, you know, taking responsibility, I suppose, for their behavior and being a little bit careful. And if they were unwell, staying at home and all of that. So I think it was misrep in some ways they were caricatured a bit, you know what I mean? Where it was kind of said, oh, they just left everything carry on as normal. I mean, they didn't do that, but they did leave, adopt a very different approach, which, yeah, you'd look at that statistics and you say, well, it is interesting and, and time will tell. But uh, I do know there were people in Sweden who were obviously giving out about what their government was doing as well and saying that they were too cavalier, that they sort of, um, you know, in an irresponsible way, um, risked public health by doing sure. that. But the figures don't necessarily back that view up, you know. Yeah. But maybe it's a little bit early to say. Um, but I, I do think the inconsistency across Europe with the advice uh, with the figures is leading a lot of people now to get totally demoralized and skeptical about the whole thing nearly, which is very unfortunate because it's leading to all sorts of conspiracy theories and madness where those in authority and the health authorities seize the information and had a frank discussion about the issues, a, a proper one, you know, balanced discussion, then I don't think you'd have that. Instead, if somebody asks a question, they're nearly sort of accused of jeopardizing public health if you question any of the government decisions, which I think is completely unacceptable. In terms of um, the, the question of vaccines, we're kind of getting bits of information about vaccines. Michal Martin made a speech to the nation last night as we enter level five lockdown again from midnight on Wednesday. And one of the things he said very briefly was, you know, potentially good news by the end of the year on vaccines but it would be another 12 months before we could realistically see vaccines being rolled out. I was also listening to Professor Luke O'Neill last week on the radio, who suggested that the European Commission had pre-ordered 700 million vaccines. Obviously, these are vaccines that have not been fully tested and are not readily available. But what what is the EU's kind of action with vaccines and what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, look, at there's some, they've pumped a lot of money into some of the big companies, I believe that, you know, big pharma and that are talking about some vaccine that they produced in, uh, in Belgium, actually, that they want to be given the go ahead on and that they think they're ready with. And that was kind of being promoted as good news. But um I don't know. I mean, obviously, big pharma and the pharmaceutical lobby is immense here uh, in the European Union. And they have, as I said, spent hundreds of millions uh, on this stuff over you know a long period of time. But ultimately, the pharmaceutical industry is in it for profit. So I think we have to be very, very careful as well uh, in that regard. I don't know how near we are to it. Obviously, they've been given immunity, I think, as well, haven't they, in terms of... Uh, in the early stages or there will be so uh, it's probably a little bit early to say and I, I would think that the authorities are putting a positive spin on it because they need for people to have some light at the end of the tunnel indeed and i guess just looking to the future claire what would your hopes be in terms of covid over the next six to twelve months what did the eu need to be doing to improve the lives of citizens 
and and obviously for people to have hope that within six to 12 months, hopefully we'll be coming out of this. I mean, I think they have to learn the lessons of the health cutbacks. Like they say health is a member state competence, so it's up to the governments to do it. But we know from uh, behind the scenes interventions in trying to force countries to keep to what they call the fiscal rules and balance their books more or less within certain limits that within that then they've led them to recommend slashing health budgets. And that's why you've got the countries like why Germany didn't suffer as much because they didn't cut their health budgets. Whereas Ireland is locking down, keeping people in their homes, preventing cancer patients from getting access to cancer treatment because they need to keep COVID beds free, locking people in their homes and the mental health resources are all over the place, you know. So we're paying a price for our not because they need to free the beds up because if there is a an avalanche, the, the hospitals won't be able to, to cope with it in Ireland because our health service is weak. So I think we need to review our attitude to health as an important public service across Europe. That's the first thing. I think there needs to be consistency on the issues. We need to live with this, as it were, you know, and manage it. And the schizophrenic changing of rules approach is just not on. Like, it's it's not going to work, you know, at all. So we need to bolster the, the health end of it, I suppose. And yeah, I mean, and get consistency across borders. That's probably the, the best we can hope for. And we can only, you know, we can really only hope that that happens from an Irish point of view, because like you said earlier, the individual member states, you know, really do are led by the, you know, the likes of NFET in terms of advice and, they, and they're mm. making their own rules. They're not really being led by yeah. the European Parliament or the European Commission in this in this regard. But you would like to see that there are lessons that are hopefully going to be learned in the future in terms of investment and health and so on. I mean, you'd be thinking it's one disease. It should be, the response should be the same everywhere. Listen, Claire, thanks a million for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. Very interesting to hear your views on where we are with COVID and, and also a little bit of an insight into the life of an Irish MEP. And maybe we can talk more about that at another stage. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Paul. That's it. More episodes coming soon. Thanks to Claire Daly for being my guest on COVID-19 and the EU. Be sure to subscribe on nearcast.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. COVID-19 and the EU is supported by the Communicating Europe initiative.